Well, <laughs> and I just got one right on my head as I was walking up. <laughs> the ice on the ceiling is finding its way through the cracks, and somebody commented that it looks like we're having more than one baptism this morning. So <laughs> here we go. Ah, uh, let's pray. Father, we are in a broken-down building, and we are a number of broken-down people. But we believe that when you're inside of us, you can shine through the brokenness. You can shine through the cracks, and we're trusting in that. Thank you so much for this gathering. Be glorified with everything that is said and sung. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you're online, welcome. If you're in-house, welcome. We are looking at Jesus' words to the seven churches that he told John to deliver when John was in exile on the island of Patmos. A letter first to the church in Ephesus, and then as you go up the coast, last week we heard Nathan masterfully explain the letter to the church that was meeting in Smyrna, the city of Smyrna, and this morning we're considering what Jesus wanted said to the church meeting in Pergamum. Pergamum is today the city of uh, Bergama in Turkey. Now, back in the first century, the Roman historian Pliny, Pliny the Younger, would actually say that Pergamum was by far the most famous city in Asia. At that time, Ephesus was a political center and Smyrna was a commercial center, and Pergamum was a religious center. It was known for its wealth, for its culture, for its education. It was home to the second largest library, the first being in Alexandria, Egypt. Pergamum was a city filled with temples. The first temple for emperor worship was built in Pergamum. Temples were built for Zeus, for Bacchus, for Hadrian, and on and on. While it was a city of sophistication and intellectualism, it also embraced idolatry and infidelity. Pergamum was filled with prostitution, sodomy, and orgies, and all forms of sexual perversion. This was a tough place to live, especially if you were trying to follow Christ. Look what Jesus said in this letter to them. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. And nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. 
So Jesus starts by saying, my words are a double-edged sword. Now, have you and I been around Jesus long enough by now to know that sometimes his words can draw us in like a magnet, and other times his words cut like a knife, huh? His words are perfectly balanced with grace and truth. Yet he accepts each one of us where we are and refuses to leave us there. His grace pulls us in, and his truth cuts away the parts of us that we need to leave behind. Look how the Hebrew writer describes his word. God means what he says. What he says goes. His powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. Nothing and no one can resist God's word. We can't get away from it, no matter what. His words can bring things together, and his words can tear things apart, but his words are always, always true and right. It reminds me of the classic C.S. Lewis, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. That scene where the four children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who tell them that the king, tell the beaver, Mr. Beaver tells them that the king the king of the land is Aslan, the great lion. And Susan responds, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion? I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Because he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Oh, I love that movie so much. <laughs> Oh, you just feel that motion. Mr. Beaver kind of drew us all in, didn't he? While Jesus' words may draw in or they may cut, either way, they're good. They're good words. And Jesus begins his letter with some of these drawing in words, words of commendation. Jesus knew that Pergamum wasn't an easy place to live in. And the heathen culture ran thick with immorality. So much so that Jesus said the prince of darkness lived and had his throne there. <laughs> it's a pretty rough place. Yet the believers there remained true to Jesus' name and refused to renounce their faith in him. Some even remained faithful through death. According to the early church fathers, this Antipas that Jesus mentions in the letter, Tertullian writes about it. He said that he was brought before a statue of Caesar, and he was told to say, Caesar is Lord, or die. You say it, or you die. Antipas, of course, refused, and he was placed in a brass-shaped bowl and put over a fire and roasted to death. That's a rough way to go. Words of commendation for remaining true to the name of Christ and not renouncing the faith, most deserved for sure. But Jesus did have some other words. These words don't draw you in. These words are tough to hear. I'm just going to give you a little forewarning, huh? When surrounded by godlessness, 
It's just difficult to not be contaminated. The great evangelist D.L. Moody once said, the place for the ship is the sea, but God help the ship if the sea gets in the ship. Jesus had a strong word for the church of Pergamum because they let the city of Pergamum slip in. In his book, Discipleship on the Edge, Daryl Johnson makes this statement. Look at this. The church of Jesus Christ is to be an inclusive community in the sense that all are welcome, Jew and Gentile, free and slave, male and female, all are welcome. But the church is not to be inclusive of all ideas, of all presuppositions, of all social and spiritual persuasions. All of us are welcome, but all of us are then called by the head of the church, which is not a man. The head of the church is only Christ. Are called by the head of the church to repent, to change our minds, to submit our thinking to the thinking of Jesus Christ. So you see, Jesus and his words are the only things that matter. The example Jesus uses to explain what the church at Pergamum had done was from the Old Testament. There were two characters at play here, one named Balak, who was the king of Moab, and the other was Balaam, who was a prophet. Well, Balak realized that Israel was reclaiming the ground, the property that God had already given the Israelites. Moab was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he knew that he wasn't going to be able to stand up against the Israelite army with God leading them. So he hires Balaam the prophet to call a curse down on Israel. Great story. Balaam makes a donkey of himself. But if it's a, you'll have to read the story. It's a funny thing. It's a funny thing. The donkey actually talks to him. But the long and the short of it is he, he, he's not able to curse Israel. And so Balak is hacked. He's ready to kill this prophet. I hired you to do this. And so Balaam said, hey, all is not lost. I'll tell you what you do. You just seduce Israel with your pagan religion and all of those awful rituals and illicit sex, and you'll take Israel down. Do you know that King Balak actually did that? And over 25,000 Israelites died because of it. You see, Balaam knew that the Israelite army could not be defeated without. So the attack must come from within. Fellas, aren't we seeing that on Wednesday night? Our get-togethers are just showing that that's where he's coming at us. And it happens for all of us. He's coming within. The false teachings of the Nicolaitans, somehow they were blending. I don't think they were necessarily letting go of Christianity, of Jesus. They were just trying to blend all of the other forms in. That does sound remotely familiar, doesn't it? There is one God, and there is one Savior, and it all is Him. It's all through Jesus. So somehow the Nicolaitans were being allowed in the Pergamum church, those teachings were, and those religions were finding a foothold in that church. Now, one thing's for sure. If we as a church hold firm to Christ, the world around us is not going to clap and applause and say, oh, yay, we love the Christians. Here's the stage. Please, please teach us. <laughs> if you stand firm for Christ, you will face opposition. So when we face it, go, oh, well, Jesus told us this. We can expect so. But if the church continues to make one concession after another to the world, we're going to lose our potency. We're going to lose our identity. 
Charles Spurgeon once said, the very, that very church that the world likes best is sure to be that which God abhors. Jesus had some very strong words for compromising with heresy. And I think it's kind of interesting because the Pergamum church seemed to have the exact opposite problem as the church in Ephesus. Ephesus did not tolerate wicked teaching, but they lost their love for Christ. Pergamon tolerated wicked teaching, but they never lost their love for Christ. You know what we're back to? That word called balance. We need the love of Christ to remain strong, and we need the teachings of Christ to remain strong in truth. Because any ideas, false ideas that we accept, it will be to our detriment. So Jesus clearly tells them that the course to take after compromising with heresy is to repent. Now, when I hear the word repent, I don't have a positive connotation, but I'm trying to reorder my thinking on that. When I think of repent, I usually think of some guy up here with a vein popping out his neck and a bony finger looking at me and just saying, repent, you know. I think repent might be one of the most beautiful words in all of Christian vocabulary. You know why? Because it means you're not stuck. There's another way. You, you have a choice. In Hebrew, the word repent literally means to turn around. In Greek, the word repent literally means to change your way to, you think. So, repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of heart that results in a change of action. It's not really complicated. It's just saying you're not stuck where you are. In repentance, we now no longer run away from Christ towards sin. We now run toward Christ away from sin. All right. Then i got to read the last part of this letter one more time. Jesus has commended them for, for remaining true and not renouncing their faith in him in spite of living in a really tough city. Jesus accuses them with holding on to false teachings and compromising with heresy, and then he exhorts them to repent. They weren't stuck. That change was still within reach. And then look again at verse 17. To the one who overcomes I will give some of the hidden manna I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it the overcomer is given the hidden manna which is the same today as it was back when Jesus had them deliver this letter to Pergamum it's the bread of heaven that comes and it's much, much more than that bread that fell like honey-soaked wafers from the sky that they baked, which was such a cool miracle. It was so much more than what Moses gave the people when the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness. Jesus explained it. Look what he says. The real significance of that scripture is not that Moses gave you bread from heaven, but that my Father is right now offering you bread from heaven, the real bread 
the bread of God came down out of heaven and is giving life to the world. And the people were there. They jumped at that. Master, give us this bread now and forever. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. The person who aligns with me hungers no more and thirsts no more, ever. The overcomer is actually given Jesus himself. Period, paragraph, chapter, book, let's go home. What more could you ask for? Well, it's just like God. There's more. The overcomer is given a white stone with a new name. Scholars have had fun with this. There are a number of explanations. One explanation, in John's time, white stones were used as admission tickets to public events. This could mean admission to heaven would be absolute for those who are in Christ. I like that explanation. Another explanation. It means the Roman Empire at the time would award a white stone at the public games like the Olympics. The white stone would have inscribed the victor's name in his hometown, entitling him to live at the public's expense for the rest of his life. I like that explanation too. A third explanation from a scholar. The white stone was also used in a court of law. Black stones were used for condemnation verdicts, while white were used for acquittals. But perhaps the best interpretation is that the whiteness of the stone denoted holiness, similar to the white hair and clothing described in Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, and the white robes that we as saints are going to wear when we lift him up in praise. The stone is a picture of something lasting, as is our new nature of purity given to us through the sacrifice of Jesus. And the new name? Well, we have examples of that riddled through Scripture too. You remember Abram became Abraham, Sarai became Sarah, Jacob became Israel, Simon became Peter, Saul became Paul. And each time when God revealed this new name, he also tacked on kind of a new task and a new nature for that person. So could this be related to something that we will be receiving in the coming new eternal kingdom? A name, a name known only to you, that he calls you? Jesus said, to those who overcome, yours will be Christ, the hidden manna. And yours will be a white stone inscribed with your new secret name. You guys, the darkness and evil that surrounds us will soon fade into new beginnings because the empty grave means that the risen one has overcome. And if your king has overcome, if the one you've paid allegiance to has overcome, you know what that means about you. You too shall overcome. So let's read it again. To those who overcome, yours will be Christ, the hidden manna. And yours will be a white stone inscribed new, inscribed with your new secret name. Father, this takes us places that only dreams are made of. We're, we're really baffled to imagine what you're preparing. 
I mean, to get Jesus is more than we could ever ask for. And so we are so excited. And to think that a stone might be prepared with our new name, a name known only to us that you give us. Father, change us. Change us to be people that are eager to share this, that want to look for opportunities to tell people about you. Thank you so much for these promises. And forgive us for times when we've let compromise slip in. We repent. Hear our hearts as we sing this song. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.